the Roman Senate had just about succeeded in manipulating Mark Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian into war with each other. The wedge was meant to be the youngest of the three, Octavian, the man that the Senate gave an army to and sent off to fight Mark Antony. But then Octavian turned the tables on the Senate, using the army the Senate gave him to march on Rome and name himself Consul. And then not long after that, all three men, once rivals for the legacy of Julius Caesar, put aside their differences and formed a united front. These three men would return to Rome and unleash a reign of terror unlike any the city had ever seen. The death toll numbered in the thousands, many of the victims Rome's most well-pedigreed elites. The triumvirate needed money for soldiers because they were going to take the fight to Brutus and Cassius and put an end to the Republic once and for all. All that and more on this episode of the Pax Romana podcast. Episode 4, The Terror of the Triumvirate. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you that new episodes arrive on Tuesday and Friday, so twice a week. And as I accumulate questions for a Q&A episode, those episodes will likely be available on Fridays. And I've already been getting some listener questions at colin at poxromanapodcast.com. Feel free to contact me there. And also you can get a hold of me on Twitter or X at ProfCPE. All right, that's all I've got. Let's get into it. Mark Antony, Lepidus, and Caesar and their combined armies marched into Rome late in the year 43 BC. Only now they came in as official heads of state, all three of them. Their military coup was made legal by a law proposed by a Roman official and then passed in a popular democratic assembly. But this new government was authoritarian to the core. I'll let the Roman author Appian summarize what happened. This is what he says. Rome was speedily filled with weapons and military standards disposed in the most obvious places. A public assembly was immediately called in the midst of the soldiers and the tribune proposed a law providing for a new government for settling the present disorders. It would consist of three men, Lepidus, Antony, and Octavian, who would hold the same power as consuls for five years. No time was given for consideration of the proposal, nor was a future day appointed for voting on it, but it was passed straight away. That's Appian in his Civil Wars. Normally such proposals, especially one with such sweeping changes to the constitution of the Roman Republic, carried a mandatory waiting period before passing so that the measure could be properly considered. Unlike as is done in many modern societies, the Romans actually read their bills, but not this one. After all, the men behind it had one of the largest combined armies the Roman world had ever seen. And as is often the case in autocracies, the official name for the new government was pure doublespeak. They called it the Three-Man Commission for Restoring the Republican Constitution. What a joke of a title. But actually, if anyone laughed at it, they were likely to be killed because this commission held absolute power and very quickly they begun to use it or, more accurately, to abuse it. 
Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian were not to be constrained by any law, nor democratic assembly, not even the Senate. They held the power to appoint men into office rather than go through those pesky elections. Any laws they passed could not be appealed. And their dictates were to be enforced by an even larger army than they began with. Over time, each triumvir accumulated around 20 legions each. That's around 100,000 soldiers for each of Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian. There were no nuclear warheads in ancient Rome, but these massive personal armies acted as a form of mutually assured destruction instead. The men also divided up Rome's empire into three parts. Mark Antony took Gaul, Caesar's old province, which he probably expected to loot. Lepidus took Spain, rich with gold, silver, timber, and other natural resources. Finally, Octavian was given the Roman provinces of Sicily and Africa. Now, by Africa, the Romans did not mean the whole continent. But what the Romans called Africa was really just a relatively small chunk of land to the southwest of Sicily, modern-day Tunisia for the most part. Both the province of Africa and Sicily were major grain-producing regions for the city of Rome. And Octavian's lot sounds like it's pretty good, but actually he drew the shortest straw because the triumvirate did not actually control Sicily and Africa. The person that controlled that area was the surviving son of Caesar's old enemy Pompey, and his name was Pompey Sextus. And Pompey Sextus did not play nice with Octavian, the adopted son of Caesar, the man indirectly responsible for Pompey's death. And Pompey Sextus would use the ships that he had over the next several years to block grain supplies from reaching Rome, causing widespread starvation in the city, undermining Octavian's position in the triumvirate. The very fact that the triumvirs felt they could simply divide the empire like this among themselves was odious, of course, to elite conservative Romans. The ancient Greek biographer Plutarch summarizes it like this. The triumvirs divided up the whole empire among themselves as though it were an ancestral inheritance. But the dispute about the men who were to be put to death gave them the greatest trouble. Each demanded the privilege of slaying his enemies and saving his kinsmen. That's Plutarch's biography of Mark Antony. And oh, did I mention, by the way, that there were kill lists. In addition to dividing land between themselves, the three men also divided up the names of several hundred senators and about 10 times that amount of rich landowners, businessmen, and creditors. Anyone with their name on the triumvir's list immediately became a fugitive who could be hunted down and murdered with impunity. All his property became the possession of the state. And now you know how Antony Lepidus and Octavian paid for those massive personal armies with blood money stolen from men assassinated by their new government. Now, no full list of the victims, which number roughly the same as those killed on the September 11th attacks in the United States, over 3,000, no list of those men exists. The triumvirs struck the names as soon as each murder took place so that anyone who aided the government whether they were informers or executioners, would be protected from any retribution later on. Yet we know at least one of the names that was on the lists. 
Marcus Tullius Cicero. Yep, Mark Antony got his revenge on the man who savaged him so bluntly and brilliantly in the Senate. Cicero fled eastward when he found out he was on the list, hoping to join Brutus and Cassius who were away in Greece trying to rally support and money for an army to take on the three Caesareans. But Cicero was caught and cut down before he left Italy. Mark Antony, who had quite a stomach for brutality, I might add, had the hands that wrote those nasty speeches nailed to the speaker's podium in the forum at the center of Rome. Antony, as you might expect, handled power especially badly. We're told by sources that he returned to his bad habits, drinking and partying. He took over Pompey the Great's old house, but he filled it with some of the most loathsome characters, circus entertainers, prostitutes, socialites, and at the same time, he barred the gates to those who came to visit him on official government business. But the triumvirs weren't about just stealing, murdering, and wallowing in unbridled power. There was the matter of Caesar's assassins to contend with. Brutus and Cassius, along with several others of Caesar's murderers, were still running free in Greece. Worse, the conspirators had been plundering Greek cities to raise funds for an army to rival that of the triumvirs. And with the tyrannical behavior of the triumvirs alienating Rome's elites, Brutus and Cassius were likely to gain support if they could just buy enough time. The triumvirs, meanwhile, needed to move on the conspirators before they lost the advantage gained by their sudden alliance and their drastic seizure of money and land in Rome. So which of them would go to Greece? Antony couldn't be trusted in Rome. He was too prone to debauchery. So, of course, he was sent to confront Brutus and Cassius, but Octavian went with him. And between the two of them, they took a total army of 28 legions, around 100,000 soldiers. Lepidus, who had what the other two lacked, he was more sober than Antony, and he was older and more experienced than Octavian, Lepidus stuck back in Rome to keep order in the city. And this decision worked out pretty well, especially for Antony. Octavian actually became ill pretty quickly on the campaign march, and so Antony ended up taking the lead. And this was a guy that was at his worst when he had nothing to do in Rome, but when he was leading soldiers and when he had a purpose, he seemed to be at his very best. The campaign seemed to straighten Mark Antony out at least until he met Cleopatra, but that is a story for next time. In the meantime, Antony returned to his charming self as he marched through Greece. Plutarch's biography tells us that Antony was such a gentleman to the Athenians, for example, that the population named him a friend of the city. Antony handed out lavish gifts and agreed to judge several high-profile cases in the Greek cities that he traveled through. But Antony never lingered, and he never fell into his worst habits. He was focused on the prize. He was focused on fighting Brutus and Cassius, and he continued to push his army northward to the Greek city of Philippi, where Brutus and Cassius's army of about 80,000 Romans and Greek mercenaries were entrenched and fortified and ready to fight. The battle, when it finally arrived, was a grueling affair. It lasted several weeks. The two armies were pretty evenly matched and evenly numbered. Much of the fighting ended up being between densely packed infantry formations just pushing against each other, stabbing, cutting at exposed body parts. 
until the soldiers in the front fell and the new soldiers could replace them from behind. Rinse and repeat. And as the days dragged on, the fields of battle became covered with bodies. And the constant dust kicked up by so many troops made it impossible to figure out which side was winning from day to day. At one point, Octavian reportedly left the battle and hid, thinking that his side was losing. Cassius, too, later thinking that he had lost, committed suicide. And after several weeks, the battle finally turned in favor of Mark Antony. Octavian's name appears very little in the surviving accounts of the battle, although his soldiers evidently were the ones who finally captured Brutus's camp. And shortly after, Brutus followed Cassius and took his own life, and thus ended the conspiracy to kill Caesar and to take back the Republic, with success in the first goal, but the second and far more difficult goal would now never be achieved. Instead, Caesar's legacy lived on in the three now undisputed leaders of Rome, Lepidus, Antony, and Octavian. But with their vengeance accomplished, the triumvir's unity faltered very quickly. The maneuvering for supremacy began almost immediately after the Battle of Philippi. Octavian would return back to Rome with many of the veterans of the battle, both his and Antony's, and it would be his difficult task to confiscate even more land from Rome's elites and pass out that land as a reward to the surviving soldiers. And Rome was in disarray. Pompey's son Sextus had continued his blockade of the city, and riots were on the verge of erupting. Lepidus left Rome, and he went to the Roman province of Africa to try to secure an alternative source of grain. And Antony, the hero of the hour, elected not to return to Rome at all, but to push eastward into the wealthy territories of Asia Minor. So here was Antony, at the head of an army, but now without a purpose, other than just to march around a world full of temptations and wealth. It was simply too much for Antony's frail character to handle. Plutarch tells us what happened next. Quote, Crossing over into Asia, Antony laid hands on the wealth that was there. Kings would often come to his doors, and wives of kings, vying with one another in their gifts and their beauty, would yield up their honor for his pleasure. That's Plutarch's biography of Antony. Supposedly, Antony was doling out punishments to the cities who supported Brutus and Cassius. That was his official reason for being over in the East. In reality, he was just enriching himself. He was dabbling in the pleasures and extravagances of the Eastern Mediterranean. Antony would summon different minor kings and queens into his presence, demanding payment, sometimes in gold, sometimes in their bodies. But then Antony summoned one monarch that he could not dominate, a queen who in fact dominated him. This woman, fluent in over five languages, queen of a people who may have given birth to civilization itself, a woman who even captured the heart of Julius Caesar, came to Antony from Egypt. And Plutarch tells us that Antony, at the very first sight of her, lost himself, and that, quote, his love for her supervened roused and drove to frenzy many of the passions that were still hidden and quiescent in him and dissipated and destroyed whatever good and saving quality still offered resistance and he was taken captive in this manner 
Plutarch's biography of Antony. That woman's name, of course, was Cleopatra. And she takes over our story on the next episode of the Pax Romana podcast. Thanks for listening to the Pax Romana podcast. For more information, including a list of primary sources and further reading, check the show notes. Music by Red Productions and Exacor. Follow Dr. Colin Elliott on X at ProfCPE or email colin at paxromanapodcast.com. Listen to more episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or just about anywhere podcasts are available. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Pax Romana Podcast. <laughs>